This past Wednesday, January 20th, was obviously the presidential inauguration, but it also was another unfortunate milestone of it being exactly one year since the first diagnosed case of COVID-19 in the United States. And in the one year since, we've lost over 400,000 Americans to or with this disease. I don't have to tell you it's been an extraordinary year of isolation and even extreme loneliness for a lot of people. Social distancing has had significant effects, not just on culture generally, but it's had significant impacts on the way Christians are able to live and worship and gather together and practice our church life together. Christians are disengaged. I've seen more DIY theology over the last year than many previous years of ministry put together just because you are isolated, because you're making big, life-changing decisions and often you feel alone. Sometimes you can take that weight fully and solely on yourself and feel like, I've just got to do this. Other people seem to be making this work. And so I think that this topic that we come to this morning is incredibly important for such a time as this. So we're going through this series, Supernatural, and this image behind me is meant to symbolize a depth and a resilience and a steadfastness, a substantiveness to life, instead of just being shallow, superficial, self-serving followers of Jesus, we actually dive right in. And we've been going through the what of a supernatural life and the how in the Spirit's power. Last week we looked at the why, and now this morning I want to talk to you briefly about a supernatural with whom. In other words, supernatural partnerships. Because if you want to be a person of depth, a person of resilience, a person of substance, you can't be a lone wolf Christian or a lone wolf family that thinks we can handle stuff on our own. We don't need church community the way that other people need church community. You are not meant to support yourself. You are not meant to figure out all of life's complexities and problems and solve them on your own. You are not meant to do life and ministry alone. By God's design, we're all part of a family. We're part of a body. We're part of a vine. We're part of a team. We're part of a local church. You need other people, and here's another truth that you may not even believe some of you about yourself. Other people need you. So if you're in Acts chapter 11 this morning, instead of just hitting you with like some propositional truth, this story is actually one of my favorites in the book of Acts, and it's an often overlooked story, but let's read part of it together. Beginning in verse 19, the scripture says, now those who were scattered Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Let me talk to you a moment about this city, Antioch. Founded by one of Alexander the Great's generals, Antioch actually became the eastern capital of the entire Roman Empire during the days of Jesus Christ. Okay, patterned after Rome. So the city's being built from the ground up as the eastern capital of the Roman Empire, patterned after Rome. So they, they put in a hippodrome and all these theaters, baths, aqueducts, roads, all that Roman development that you've read about with the Pax Romana, all of that is going into Antioch. And by the time that our story takes place around 45 or so AD, Antioch is the third largest city in the world or at least the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind only Rome and Alexandria. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city, a melting pot of cultures, predominantly Greek and Roman, but about a seventh of the population at this time was Jewish. So substantial population. A significant Persian, Indian, and Chinese presence led to one of its nicknames, the Queen of the East. Religiously, Antioch was pluralistic, it was tolerant. At least 18 different gods from the Roman and Greek pantheons had their own temples in Antioch during this time. Like Corinth, Antioch was infamous for its immorality. So as I'm reading this story and reading this background and studying the city of Antioch, and so what, what's happening in Jerusalem is persecution of Jews who don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So they're killing people. Stephen's the first martyr. A bunch of Christians are fleeing from persecution. Antioch is one of the major hubs that they come to. And they think because of its tolerance, because of its religious pluralism, we'll be safe here. And generally they were. But the question arises, how do you live on mission for Christ? in a pluralistic, multicultural city like Antioch. And at least part of the answer that we find in this text is, well, you don't do it alone. You need supernatural partnerships. Look with me again at verse 19, where it's saying that those who are scattered from Jerusalem, so this would have been predominantly Jews, or maybe even entirely Jews, those who scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And all you're reading there is not necessarily a racism, though it's possible. What you're reading is that it was very natural for Jews to go to a new city, connect with other Jews in a synagogue, worship with people that were like them, monotheistic shared many of the same cultures and practices and traditions and beliefs. But then verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the Hellenists were the Greek speakers. So these were Gentiles. 
And so you see Jews going to Jews primarily. You see Greek speakers going to other Greek speakers. And they too, as, as former polytheists, as pluralists, they would immediately have a number of traditional connections to Greek culture, okay? So each is speaking to them. And what's the result? The very next verse, 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And this is your first point, first major point if you're following along with notes, recognize the value of multicultural ministry. In a city with many languages and many subcultures, multicultural ministry is not a bonus. It is essential. It is essential for reaching all these different people for Christ. By the way, this is part of by, why by design we belong not just to one, but to two different international multicultural church planting Networks, Acts 29 and Redeemer City to City, because we believe the gospel needs to be shared in people's native tongue and especially through indigenous peoples. If you don't know, this past week from end of the year giving, we were able to give an additional about $30,000 to international ministry, multicultural ministry around the world, especially in the 1040 window. Super exciting stuff. Yeah, so we're celebrating. It's awesome. That's on top of all of the missions giving that you did throughout the year, okay? So coming back to Antioch, you just see this natural division. And again, I hope it's not racism, but, but people gravitating toward, there, there are people like me, they speak my language, they know my habits. Now there are people over here that are like me, they know my language, they, 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 they know my habits. But here's what we read a year or so later, if you wanna flip forward maybe a page in your Bible, Chapter 13, verse 1. This is going to be not Jerusalem, but Antioch is going to be the first city in the world that deliberately sends Christian missionaries. And here's what we read about their leadership team a year later. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And I want to break that down for you for just a second. Barnabas was a Cypriot Jew who had moved from Jerusalem to live in Antioch and pastor the church there. Simeon was called Niger, which literally means black. Lucius was from Cyrene, which is a place in North Africa, but it's not black, it's actually Arabic. Menaean, it says he had grown up as the BFF of Herod Antipas. And then Saul a Jewish Pharisee converted back in chapter 9. So this incredibly diverse leadership team, and if, if we look back at stories like this and we're wondering part of, like, why was that church so successful at reaching a multicultural city and place, part of your answer is right here. They recognized the value of multicultural ministry. Again, not as a bonus, but as an essential to the character of that church. All right, let's go back to uh, verse 22, and now we're rewinding a year. Okay, I just, I fast forward to chapter 13, verse 1 is after a year of ministry. The leadership team looked like this. Let's back up. Verse 22, the report of this, that is the report of Jews sharing the gospel with Jews, Greeks sharing the gospel with Greeks, and many people getting saved. This news comes to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, so they send Barnabas to Antioch, when he comes, he sees the grace of God. He's glad. He exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. You see, a great many people are added to the Lord again, still more. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. 
And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Point two, as we are recognizing the value of multicultural ministry, we need to recognize the value of team ministry. So mostly at this point, the church, the early church, was just a bunch of relatively disorganized Jesus followers that for whatever reason, they seem to have taken their faith in Jesus really seriously. So much so that they instinctively, wherever they went, even if they were tent makers or farmers or shepherds or whatever they were, they just instinctively were sharing the gospel with people in their trade, people they crossed paths with, neighbors, and people are getting saved left and right. And suddenly the church is growing rapidly in Antioch and they're like, wow, we need help. They send to Jerusalem and they're like, hey, we need some organizational leadership. We need some shepherding up in here. They send Barnabas, which is a name that literally means Mr. Encouragement. And I actually think that it's just as likely that this was a nickname and not his actual name. It's possible his name was Barnabas, but it's a little bit like The Rock, the actor, you know, who is the wrestler. And no one thinks, oh, you mean Dwayne Johnson. We're like, no, The Rock, because there's something about the dude's physique. It's like, no, he's The Rock. Or like Gary Payton, who played in the NBA for many years. His nickname is The Glove because he was famous for just sticky defense. You could not get away from the glove. He was going to be on you like a latex glove on a bare hand, okay? So people take on nicknames. And so, so Mr. Encouragement is sent. Why? Well, verse 23, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That word exhorted is a word parakaleo, which uh, it's, it's a complex word with a wide semantic range. Probably the best definition I've heard from Tim Keller is it's a sympathetic, loving insistence on the truth. Sympathetic, loving, heart, insistence on the truth, head. It's a, it's a rare combination of sound in doctrine and strong in love. So Mr. Encouragement's here, and he's pouring his life into this church. But then at some point, Barnabas is also recognizing, I need help. We need backups. We need support. We need reinforcements. I need a different skill set. I need different spiritual gifts to be operating in the leadership of the church. So he goes to Tarsus and gets Saul, who is now called Paul, and brings him back, and they start shepherding the church together. And if you don't know, by the way, Barnabas very soon is going to be eclipsed in the story by Paul. Barnabas kind of drops off, but Paul the book of Acts is going to follow the Pauline story basically from this point forward to the end of the story. But it's okay because Barnabas loved Christ more than he loved his own reputation. So if he's like, if this is good for the church, I don't care if I decrease, if that means that Christ is magnified in more lives. So let's go, okay? So what's the impact of this shared leadership? And this is the point I'm getting to. And you see this at the end of the text that I read around verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, what does that mean? Because we're so used to the term, and I know I've got a bunch of friends who want to drop the term because the term is so overused and misused, Christianity doesn't really mean much of anything. I, you know, I tend to use the term Jesus follower or apprentice of Jesus to communicate. I'm not just like a Christian like that, which means that we vote a certain way. We're this big block of people that are, you know, monolithic. But at this time when the term Christian, Christian, is first used, it's probably a derisive term. And I think what's happening is this massive multicultural city is looking at this growing community of faith. And they're like, those people, who do they remind me of? Man, they look like that Jewish Messiah. 
And they're so much like that Jewish Messiah. The only term we can think to label them with is like they're little messiahs running around doing life together. Christian. Okay, what an impact. Now check this out. What's the very next thing? There's this famine during the reign of Claudius, which, by the way, is confirmed by secular history. And verse 29 says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And this is your principle number three. Recognize the need for shared resources. See, the early church had this pattern all throughout the book of Acts of holding very loosely to its resources. Time, money, stewardship of gifts, calling, vocation, energy, emotional energy. And there seems to have been this mindset of like, I I was going to use this money for this, but I see that you need it more than I do. Or this other thing you often see in the book of Acts is, what if you and I and them and them and them, what if we pooled our resources together? How much more could we do for Jesus on ministry if we took your pennies and your pennies and your dollars and your dollars and we put it together and suddenly it's something so we can go further, okay? So application for just a couple moments. Um, Who do we want to reach with the hope and the healing power and the forgiveness and the freedom of Jesus Christ? And the answer is not just middle-class white people. Because if you step outside these doors, that is not the mix of people that you find. We did not invest millions of dollars to move to the corner of Broadway and Park Avenue to reach a bunch of people just like the main culture, either of our church or our city. We came here with a a view of, God, we want to see the gospel penetrate every nook and cranny of culture. Like literally go into these alleys and begin transforming a rainbow-like spectrum of lives that reflect the kingdom of God where you say that Jesus is redeeming people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. Also, how badly do you really want to look like Jesus? I mean, would that be a disparaging thing to you if co-workers or neighbors stepped back and looked at your life and said, the only way I can think to describe you, because you're an anomaly. You're not just like a liberal or a conservative or a progressive or this and that, all these ways that we label each other. It's like, you, you just, you remind me of this character I barely know anything about in the gospels, like Jesus of Nazareth. You're living like him. And your community of faith is, is like a reflection or better yet, it's an outpost of the kingdom of God. Like when Jesus talked about the kingdom, when you all get together to do worship and to do fellowship and to do discipleship and to do outreach and to serve our city, the only thing I can think of is that you look like the kingdom of God. So here's the punchline. We've said over the past few weeks that we want a supernatural, we want an eternally significant purpose for our lives. We want to walk in apprenticeship to Jesus, which means we want to follow him. We want to listen to him. We want to learn from him and walk in his steps. We want to do that all strengthened by his power. We want to be doing things, taking risks, not foolish risks, not reckless risks, but we want to be doing things that we say, God, this is beyond us, but you're calling us into it, and you better show up with your power and do something beautiful here. We want to bring others to him so that he's glorified. 
and so that more people are saved. And the question I asked our leadership team, wow, going back probably three or four months ago, at least now, was what would you be willing to let go of if, in fact, we could see five or 10 or 20 times more people worshiping here, growing in Christ here, representing a better diversity of the neighborhood here, going into the different sectors and subcultures of our city in the way that the early church did so that more and more people are being saved and we're literally just celebrating baptisms all the time. What is so important to us that we're like, nah, we wouldn't, we wouldn't give that up to see that happen? Would we be willing to take second place? Would we be willing to share resources? Would we be willing to take risks in some ways that we haven't done before? Would we be willing to share ministry to make it less and less about us and more and more about people coming to enjoy Jesus?